Well, good morning. Um, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. So if you want to be getting yourself there, it might be, you know, helpful this morning. But let's start with a word of prayer. God, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. You're sufficient for our every need. And our request for today is simple but difficult. Help us to see and recognize you. Amen. So Palm Sunday, it's Palm Sunday. This is a story about worship. It's a story about Christ making a bold entrance and us not quite expecting him to look the way he does and eventually us becoming the unwitting recipients of grace. So it's about triumphal entries, distorted visions, and us, the unwitting recipients of grace. And I want to start today by showing you a few images. Those of you that know me know I'm not a pastor by trade. I'm an artist. And as an artist, I'm fascinated by the power of images. How many of you have seen an image kind of like this before? You can, you can raise your hand. I'm a, I'm a teacher, sorry. It's a, it's a habit. All right? Who are we looking at? We're in church, so, you know, the answer is supposed to be Jesus, right? That's usually right. This image and others like it have really shaped our collective understanding of Christ. What does Christ look like? You know, he's got that long, slightly curly hair, maybe bluish eyes, big flowy beard, he favors sandals, blue sashes, slightly taller than most people. You know, there's a whole like son of God kind of image that we've constructed that we're used to seeing. At some point in my life, I made this really shocking discovery. It was, it was I remember it was terrifying. There's just no way this picture is whatsoever accurate. In fact, as this painting is labeled, and as you probably see, this is actually a self-portrait of an artist making himself look like Christ. He's posing himself as Christ, and he's intentionally doing that. It's an image of Christ that the artist made to look like himself. It's an inversion of what we're taught to do. The artist, instead of conforming himself to the image of Christ, has conformed Christ to his own image. More recently, a team of forensic anthropologists and Israeli archaeologists wondered, given what we know in the Bible about Jesus' nationality and lineage, what might he have really looked like? Seeing that Jesus walked the earth as a Middle Eastern man roughly 2,000 years ago, they arrived at another kind of image. Now, this new image is far more likely to be accurate because it's an image of Christ based on what's been made known about him within the Bible, complemented by work of astute researchers. But this image hasn't caught on in the same way. In fact, it's stirred up a good bit of controversy. We were used to that other image of Jesus, and we don't like it when Jesus doesn't look the way we expect him to. I'm not saying this new image is perfectly accurate. I'm not saying it's even a great idea to go ahead and make depictions of Christ's. But this image makes an important step of trying to show Christ based on what he himself has made known. And it's a little worrisome to me that we generally have an easier time embracing the image of Christ that's familiar to us, that our culture has shown to us. We have an easier time embracing that image than taking him at his own words. And this is what we're going to talk about today. Our misconceptions of Christ and how they affect our response to him. See, Palm Sunday is the start of a time when we fix our eyes on Jesus. 
Palm Sunday launches what is arguably the single most important week on the church calendar. It's Holy Week. I mean, you have to look at how much space is given to it in the Bible. In Luke, five whole chapters are dedicated just to this week. He lived for 33 years, and they give five chapters to one week. The book of Mark only has 16 chapters. Six chapters are given to seven days. Ten chapters of John are dedicated to this one week. Matthew offers us another eight. This is important stuff by virtue of word count alone. Okay? But a good deal of this week is rather unpleasant to look at. This time between Palm Sunday and Easter, it isn't a lovely story about a baby born in a manger. It's a story about folks who struggle, who walk into church, as I say, with all the grace of someone who has a sharp rock in their shoe. What we're looking at today is a passage where a bunch of people like us are super excited about Jesus, but they have a distorted image of Christ in their heads. And I'm not the only one who sees it this way. This quote from Tim Keller really gets at the heart of what Palm Sunday is. It's an incredible parable of the lifelong mismatch of what we think we need and what God has provided. Or as I'll say it, it's a lifelong parable of what we think we need, how we think things should look, and what God has provided. That's what we're going to see today. And the passage starts by Christ making himself known. We have it in verse 28. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. In Luke, the story starts about as strangely as possible. Look, we've got to talk about the cult. C-O-L-T, by the way. Um, if you're looking for proof that sometimes Christ does things in ways we don't expect, you don't have to look much farther than these first verses. The disciples were probably pretty used to, God, to Jesus doing unbelievable things, but somehow, I imagine they didn't expect donkey borrowing was like part of their calling in following Christ. But bless them, the disciples who have questioned Jesus on all kinds of things, in this case, they actually obey. Jesus wants a cult. He says the Lord needs it. We'll go get it. I mean, this whole situation is just a little bit too weird to ignore. And actually, it's strangely central to Christ making himself known. See, Christ is an incredibly intentional cult borrower. There's a purpose here. Christ is beginning to orchestrate his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. By disciples taking that cult, they're playing part of a prophecy being fulfilled, a prophecy that was talked about in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Christ is fully aware of this strange prophecy. And though the whole thing by itself seems like this weird, bizarre moment, it's actually the way Christ begins orchestrating a claim that he is indeed the promised Savior, the one whose coming was foretold. This strange act of borrowing a cult is actually Christ making himself known. So I have what may prove to be the most important question today. What is the cult that Christ would have you borrow? 
if we're looking at the God we encounter in the Bible, not the image we've built in our minds, God's call, God calls people to things they didn't expect to do. It's all over the Old Testament. For Moses, a man with a likely speech impediment, hey, go to Egypt, speak on my behalf, set my people free. In Kings, which we did a long series on, David, a small shepherd boy, the youngest of his brothers, hey, go kill a giant, survive the near constant attack of Saul, become king. When God calls you, don't be surprised if it seems strange. In fact, if you look at the Bible, you might realize that most people are called to things they don't want to do or feel absolutely unqualified for. So what's the thing that you don't want Christ to ask you to do? What's the thing that you don't want Christ to ask you to do? For me, this moment right here is one of my cults. I have only once in my entire life told God I would absolutely never do one thing. And it was, be one of those people that speaks a sermon from a pulpit. It's awkward. It makes me nervous. Beyond that, it's just so boring. I mean, I tune out after 10 minutes anyway. Come on. Yet here I am, getting down to the business of cult borrowing. So what's the cult that Christ would have you borrow? And in case the subtlety of donkey theft is lost on a crowd, Christ does make a dramatic entrance into the city. We see it in verses 36 through 38. There's a raucous procession. And as he rode, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen or that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. As Christ moves forward, and he, is, he and his followers begin to assert who he is, their language takes on a tone that publicly it had not been taking. See, he had put himself forward as a miracle worker. He had allowed people to talk about him as a prophet. Some say that he was a guy who had nice ideas, but here the crowd hails him as king. When you read other accounts of this day, it becomes clear that that crowd that's praising him is suffering from very real oppression. They have a legitimate desire for a new earthly ruler, someone to free them. They see Christ entering as prophesied and believe he has come to take over as some kind of political or military leader. Other accounts of this moment record the crowd shouting, Hosanna. We use that as a cry of joyous praise, and it absolutely is. But if you look at what it really means, it's something more like, save us, or salvation, salvation is here. There's joy in it, but there's a pain in the shout of Hosanna. So they see Christ the Savior enter the scene, and the crowd joins the disciples, and they start throwing some kind of wild, triumphal entry. And of course, the Pharisees turn up, the ultimate biblical killjoys. Every time I see the Pharisees, I hear this little sound in my head, just like, wah, wah, sorry. <laughs> the Christ's new claim and the gathered crowd is not lost on the Pharisees. See, they've never really appreciated Jesus. They might have tolerated Jesus the prophet, Jesus the wise person, Jesus the miracle worker, but now he's gone too far. He's said he's Jesus the king, now entering the city in fulfillment of prophecy. 
To claim that God has sent you or commanded you or empowered you, that's one thing. But to claim that you are the promised Savior to the Pharisees who don't believe it, that's absolute heresy. And they confront him about it in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I love this. I love Jesus in verse 40 just like gets me thrilled. Christ makes absolutely no apology for who he is and what is happening. In fact, he doubles down saying, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Christ has made himself known. He will not hide it. He will not silence the people who proclaim who he is. What he does in this week of his life, what is confirmed in every single account of Palm Sunday, is step by step make bold and public claims about who he is. He is salvation come to earth. He is intentionally forcing a reaction to himself. He is saying, join in praise or try to silence me. Believe me or deny me. And ultimately, praise me or crucify me. When it comes to Christ and his divine purpose, there is absolutely no middle ground. Praise him or crucify him. We can't say Jesus, this whole God thing, this whole like walking towards the cross thing. I don't know about it. Can we get off that cross and go back to the earlier stuff? That was nice. He demands to be reckoned with. And I realize that that's not cool. Like, that kind of language might make a few enemies. It sounds a bit too much like narrow fundamentalism. It makes me uncomfortable to speak like that. But it's what I see here in the scripture. And we've got to realize, praise him or crucify him, there are times when Christ is going to make absolutely everyone uncomfortable. In fact, we have a very strong example of Christ making people uncomfortable just a little bit later, if you allow me to skip forward a bit, to verse 45. And he entered the temple and to be, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, it might be worth getting into a conversation about exactly what was going on in his house that deserved this reaction. But, but that's going to be for a bit of another day. We have a lot of things to talk about today. <laughs> Let's say this. Christ found his temple in disorder. He found it being built around something that it was not meant to be built around. And when he sees his house gone wrong, he doesn't ignore it. He confronts it. We often use this passage as like a defense of angry protest. I think at our worst, sometimes we use it as an excuse to throw like these Christian hissy fits. But when we do that, we do miss an important bit of information. Christ isn't just angry anywhere. He's not turning over tables in the marketplace. He's not throwing politicians out of office, even though the crowd would really like him to. Christ says specifically, he is in his temple, his church, his house. Read the passage. This is one of his largest claims. The house of the Lord is his house. He fulfilled prophecy on a donkey. He claimed kingship by accepting the praise of the crowd. And now he is claiming his lordship by referring to God's house as his own. It makes me wonder, what are the things we have put in place in our lives and our houses that have not been brought in line with Christ's vision? How can we put order to our lives and our homes 
What are the tables that we need to turn over? Christ enters the temple and calls it his home, claims his identity as the begotten son. The Pharisees see him as a heretic, a disruptor of their system, a person who commits the ultimate offense of claiming he is God. And in verse 47, they even begin plotting his death because they can't handle the order he's putting in place. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Now, it's easy to make these Pharisees the villain of the story. But Palm Sunday is not really a story about villainous leaders ruining what was a good thing for absolutely everyone else. As Tim Keller said, that this Palm Sunday, it's a real-life parable about the mismatch of what we think we need and what God has provided. So let's just recap a little bit. Christ has so far made himself known to three distinctive groups, and they've all responded to him. We've got the disciples. We've got the crowd. We've got the Pharisees. Disciples, crowd, Pharisees. And God revealed himself to each of them. But let's look at these groups again, knowing that less than a week from now, Christ is going to be on the cross. See, God has revealed himself to the disciples, the crowd, and the Pharisees. But each in the each of them in their own ways has already kind of failed to see who Christ really is. So we've got these disciples. They look pretty good in this story. You know, they followed Christ even when the call was strange. But they thought Christ was going to enter into a position of power. Christ is going to turn that table over. He's going to claim kingly power. He's going, but he's going to the cross. Their distorted vision, their idea that he would somehow become this godly ruler falls flat. It creates fear and confusion. In less than a week, the disciples will stand silent as he is sentenced to death. Some will even deny knowing him. The crowd, those people yelling Hosanna, they were doing really great, right? They were doing wonderful. But they're doing a wonderful thing for a bit of the wrong reason. See, they're looking to Christ with a distorted vision. They saw Christ as an earthly ruler, righteous and full of salvation, coming to take over and save them from the oppression of their current king. It's a good desire, but it's not exactly all that Christ was. They got the righteous part. They might have missed the humble. Their perceived need is a new ruler, but Christ has come to address a different need. He's offering salvation and peace that no ruler could ever take away. Over the next week, when the crowd's vision of Christ goes unfulfilled, when he fails to boot out their oppressive king, their cries of Hosanna are going to become calls to crucify him. The very people in that crowd who welcomed him will join the crowd that calls to crucify. So the Pharisees, they might be the ringleaders, they might start plotting Christ's death. We might even think that we're like better than them. But here's the problem. Even the crowd, even the disciples will participate in Christ's crucifixion by calling for it, by standing silent and letting it happen, by denying their knowledge of who he is, by failing to listen to what he's saying or see what he's doing. And I fear we might do the same. See, I resonate with the crowd personally. They wanted a ruler to take out their enemies and restore them to strength. 
They were tired of being pushed to the fringe of society. They were tired of the government working against them. If only the Savior would take over the government. If only he'd fix this problem for me. Sounds familiar? When God makes himself known, and it's not what we expected, when he disrupts our system and turns over our tables instead of ousting the king, we sometimes have a hard time seeing him clearly. We become disillusioned. And when we're disillusioned, will our cries of praise become calls to crucify? See, I'm convinced that it's only like hubris and pride that makes me think that I could ever be more than that crowd. I mean, do any of us follow Christ perfectly? Do any of us see him for all that he's doing? We all, in small ways and large, through word and through silence, crucify Christ. Just like the worshiping crowd convicts, just like the followers betray him, just as the promised Savior dies. But here's the thing. All these messed up folk, all these people with their distorted visions of Christ, they were absolutely necessary. The fair-weather crowd, the plodding Pharisees, the enthusiastic then absolutely quiet disciples, they are vehicles of God's redemption story. And Christ doesn't hold their short-sightedness against them. This is where we look at that prayer that's in verses 40 through 42 that we jumped ahead of. See, in that prayer, there is sadness and grace for us. He says, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, the way to he began to weep. How I wish today that all of you would understand the way to peace, but now it's too late. Peace is hidden from your eyes. He knows that folks aren't getting it. Christ knew what they would do. He understands the horrible death that awaits him, and yet he orchestrates the whole entire thing. He gets the donkey. He refuses to silence the crowd. He aggravates the Pharisees. We don't see what he is so clearly and purposefully walking towards. But instead of expressing his anger at our ignorance, Christ, the one who's walking towards his death, in this prayer, he weeps for us. For fear that we don't see him. For fear of the pain that we'll suffer for missing him. See, I used to be amazed because Christ came in spite of the fact that I was so awful, or everyone was so awful. But that doesn't really get at the heart of a weeping Savior. See, Christ came not in spite of the Pharisees, not in spite of the fair-weather crowd, not in spite of his own certain death. He, became, he came because of all those things. Let me say it this way. Christ came for those people that crucified him, not in spite of those people that crucified him. He came for those that crucified him, not in spite of them. See, Jesus is not afraid of standing with people who have distorted visions, of going to people who've done the wrong thing. We see that all throughout the gospel. Instead of pushing the messed up people of the world away, he stands with them. He goes to their houses. 
Christ's not scared of our sin, our ugliness, our distorted visions, our fair-weather praise. He's not afraid of them because he knows that he is the answer to our greatest need. So Christ redeems by knowingly continuing his march to the cross. That he might enter into a redeeming relationship with broken people. He comes not in spite of the people that crucify him. He comes for them. He comes for us. He's going to the cross for people who don't yet see him rightly. See, the sad truth of it all is that what the people really needed is not the ruler king to conquer their enemies and make their lives better. Not the emperor God roaming the earth with political might. What the people needed is strangely exactly what the Pharisees put in place. A sacrificial offering to restore relationship. If you don't have things completely figured out, if you have literally gone wrong, if you're outcast or simply not good enough, if you don't have a very good picture of Jesus Christ, welcome to your family. God came for you and me, not in spite of ourselves, but because of us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we see him clearly, but because we make mistakes. Because we do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Because sometimes we even just do the wrong thing. That prayer that Christ prays, there's no hatred in it. There's no hatred for those who put him to death. There's no indignance to the fact that he's going to have to pay for our wrongs. His prayer is peace for us and sadness for the pain we're going to endure for not seeing who he is. Let me be clear. This isn't making light of our sinfulness or our distorted visions. We shouldn't be happy about the times that we ignore Christ or fall into sin. But there's an abundance of grace for those who don't follow well. Christ, strangely, doesn't seem to be put off by people making mistakes, by people doing the wrong thing. Instead, he goes to death for them. This past week, we may have crucified him in some way, by ignoring him, by denying him, by refusing to make him the ruler of some part of our lives that we just can't turn over to him. We might have crucified him, but that doesn't mean we're lost. It kind of means we're human. And he went to the cross for each of us. He's going to offer us a chance to crown him rightly, to praise him for who he is. And yet there is a warning in this prayer. Though Christ promises to bring peace, we've missed how peace would come. We've failed to see the path that Christ is laying out. That distorted vision of Christ has implications. We see them in verse 43 and 44. He offers a warning saying, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children with you. We don't have an excuse for ignoring our brokenness or allowing ourselves to continue with our deluded visions of Christ. To fail to recognize who he is or the path he's walking can't do that. 
Our poor visions will create pain within our own lives. They'll create pain within the lives of others. They will stack our enemies against us. Fixing our distorted vision of Christ will allow us to respond to him and worship him well. Even more, I believed a new, a renewed vision of Christ will help us participate in the ongoing redemption of the world rather than the ongoing destruction. A renewed vision of Christ will allow us to go and engage in the ongoing redemption of the world rather than its destruction. So what are some of the false visions of Christ that affect us? What gets in the way of us seeing where Christ is moving? There are a lot of things. We see a few of them in this passage, and I think we see a few of them, or maybe a lot of them today. One of them I've called cultural conditioning. Every church, every institution, every organization has a culture to it, and that is not a bad thing. Don't hear me wrong on that. There are a great myriad of things that define the culture of our church and our city. From the music we play on Sunday, the way we preach through the word, the ethos communities we participate in, the way we dress, the words we use with one another, the way we do or don't interact with people. Our church has a very distinct culture, and that isn't a bad thing. The problem comes when and if that culture gets misguided. Or the bigger problem, when preserving the culture is more important than observing Christ's words. See, the culture can get misguided, like that tall, bearded, blue-eyed image of Christ we've been carrying around in our heads. And sometimes, the degree to which someone suits the culture becomes the standard that is used to assess their relationship with Christ. The established culture becomes part and parcel with what it means to follow Christ. Slowly over time, we start to think what unifies us is that culture we've created rather than Christ himself. And that's a problem. See, that's what happened with the Pharisees. They had a strong and highly articulated culture, so strong that it became more important than what Christ was saying. So Christ turned over some tables. So let me risk just a small bit of trouble I'm a guest preacher anyway. There's something prevalent right now that we need to talk about. See, this past week, I had one friend who was wondering which Republican candidate I voted for. He can't envision a world where a Christian isn't a Republican. The church culture he grew up with was so defined by conservative political values, built around the idea of keeping the government out of our personal business, placing checks on morality... Sometimes it almost sounds like being Christ-like is about identifying with white, middle-class Republicans. But I have another friend. He was wondering which Democrat I voted for. Because everything in the culture he comes from defines Christ as a welcoming friend of the poor and needy, an opposition to the rich young ruler. So to be like Christ must mean being a Democrat. I mean... He can't imagine a Christ that stood alongside Republicans. He can hardly tolerate hearing them. It's as though Christ in his image is some kind of like socialist that calls rich people to give up their wealth and follow him. Their idea of who Christ is is so deeply intertwined with the culture of their politics that being Christ-like means being part of a particular political party. Both my friends might be right, but they're both absolutely wrong. They've got their priorities out of whack. 
There's this quote from a book called Jesus Outside the Lines, and I think it's really important that we note it here. It says this, if we find ourselves more at home with people who share our political values or people who share our affiliation with a particular group or organization than the people who share our faith, our priorities might be disordered. If we find ourselves more at home with those who share our culture, our politics, our groups, than those who share our faith, our priorities might be disordered. The minute your politics, your music, your occupation, your hobbies, your verbal contributions to Bible study become the standard by which you measure the sincerity of a relationship with Christ, you know your vision is being distorted by cultural conditioning. Christ is far too great far too important to be reduced to partisan politics. Any conversation that places Christ in a box that we've created through our culture is inherently flawed. Christ is too large to fit in those boxes. So how do we know when this is happening? How do we know when we're being culturally conditioned? Here's the thing to watch out for. When Christ's words seem inconvenient. Watch out when Christ's words seem inconvenient, when we find ourselves getting a little wishy-washy about what Christ says, and we all do it, there are passages that make our skin tighten. Like, oh, if you could just have not said that, it would be so much easier. When Christ's words seem inconvenient, it's usually because they are contradicting that nice cultural box that we've built for God. It means that his words aren't quite aligning with the image in our head. There might be a tall, bearded, long-haired, blue-eyed image of Jesus that you need to try and fix. <laughs> That's a place to look closely. That place of tension that you experience when, you, when God's words are inconvenient, it might be a place where God is actually trying to speak peace into your life in a way you don't know yet. But there's a second issue. Because this cultural conditioning is aggravated by a second thing. And I've called it being overprotective of God and his church. That seems strange. Being overprotective of God and his church is a problem. We've been raised in a culture that like, strongly affirms the idea that if you give a hand, someone's going to take an arm. We want to protect God, so we establish a definitive view of who he is. Well, the fact is, there's so much that we don't know. He's too large for even our minds. And we kind of need to get a little more comfortable with that. So we started fighting over some really ludicrous things in Christianity. Like, when Christ will return and exactly what it will look like. Are you premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial? Oh, see, that one makes a lot of laughs at my seminary where I'm at. All right. It's all right. If you don't know those terms, blessings on you. <laughs> because the Bible specifically says, we don't know when he's coming. The problem is, when we become overprotective of Christ, we have a hard time welcoming people because other people's definitions don't fit ours absolutely down to the T. Even worse, we tend to push those people away that we disagree with. Look at the passage that we just read. The Pharisees, they're the ones who operate like this. They're the ones who go on the defensive instinct. They shouldn't be our role models. I suspect this is one of the biggest struggles the church at large faces today. We act like Christ is some kind of fragile being that needs protection. Got something to let you know. Christ is not so fragile. One of my favorite poets and hip-hop artists, his name's Propaganda, he says it like this. 
Trying to protect God is like defending a lion. It don't need your help. Just unlock the cage. Look at the Christ we witnessed in this story today. He makes no apologies for who he is. He doesn't need our help protecting him. And he really doesn't need our help making enemies. So watch out. Watch out when you find yourself considering someone beyond hope, when you wish to shout heretic, or when you wish to push someone away to defend God. That's usually a defensive action. Remember that Christ is someone who associates with the broken. The ones he dies for are those who don't see him rightly. If our church isn't filled with people who need to see Christ more clearly, then our church is really missing some people. So we've got to stop pushing people out and start introducing them to Jesus. This doesn't mean encouraging people to preach falsehoods. It means, though, that if you go around disassociating with people who you disagree with or who you think might have some untruths to fix, if you go around disassociating with them, there is so little hope for redemption in their lives. You might miss the opportunity to see Christ. Christ who seeks redemptive relationship with the people who, fa- see, who fail to see him clearly. If you push people away, you might miss Christ. Our faith shouldn't be instilled through cultural conditioning. It shouldn't be some kind of strengthened by defensive reactions. Instead, our faith should be a response to encountering Christ as he presents himself. Our faith should be sharpened through diverse perspectives. We're benefited by association with challenging ideas. Christ moves among those who don't see him quite clearly. And if after all that, you still want to know what does actually protect Christ, what preserves his presence among us, what defends him, I want to introduce you to one last group of people in this passage. We had the disciples. We had the crowd. We had the Pharisees. But there's also a group of people at the temple in verses 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they didn't find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. Let me read that last bit again. They didn't find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. If you want to know who Christ is, if you want to protect him, if you want to check yourself against cultural conditioning, there's one solution. Listen to Christ. Read the Bible. Pay attention to his claims. Don't skip the uncomfortable stuff. Pray, and instead of asking God to meet all your perceived needs, ask that you might see him more clearly. What does Christ really look like? What's the image in your head? Is he the cult borrower who fulfills prophecy? Is he the king who comes righteous and full of salvation, but humble? Is he the king who turns over tables and puts his house in order? Who is the Christ that we follow, love, and believe in? Let's assess our visions. Let's listen and open our eyes for Christ. Let's step outside of our tidy cultural boxes and invite relationship with broken people. That's the challenge for this week. What's one thing you can do to step outside your culture this week 
and to open up the opportunity for relationship with broken or distant people. In light of who Christ is, take this week to think. Who are the people we consider too broken to be helped? Who are the people we hold at arm's distance? How can we take steps to be a people who seeks relationship with rather than disdain from those you disagree with? How can we model the humility of Christ and the willingness to establish relationship with those who fail to see him clearly? How can we engage in the protective power of listening? And consider this. Christ is going to return. Wouldn't it be amazing if we saw him more clearly the next time around? Would you join me in prayer? God, I'm convinced that even though we're already the unwitting recipients of grace, you are a God who seeks relationship. You're present in places of discomfort, in places of fear, in places of oppression. Help us fix our vision. Help us enter into a relationship with the broken that we might see you more clearly. We long to be in relationship with you and to see others drawn to you until every tribe, every tongue, every person, and every nation, even the very stones of this earth, cry out in praise of God. To your glory forevermore. Amen.